This Advent Sunday, let's turn uh, in our Bibles to Titus chapter number 2. Titus chapter number 2. We began last Sunday for uh, four Sundays of Advent. Uh, we'll finish on Christmas Eve Sunday in two weeks from now, uh, thinking and contemplating what it means to live in the light of Advent, the first as well as the second Advents or comings of our Lord. And this morning, I want us to focus our hearts and minds on the theme of grace and godliness. So how are we to live? We are to live with these two ideas in mind, grace and godliness. And so the Apostle Paul writing to Titus, Pastor Titus on the island of Crete uh, in the Mediterranean, he writes in chapter 2, and you'll see there, I'm not going to read it, but just as you note, as you kind of glance down, he gives various instructions to older men, to older women, to younger men, uh, and uh, to older women to teach younger women, so uh, men, women, and young people uh, in the Christian faith. He speaks here about husbands and wives, and he speaks about servants and masters and, and all those in society, uh, how they are to, as believers, live godly lives. Notice in verse 10, he says, uh, so that in everything they, meaning in the context here, these men, women, children, servants, so forth, meaning every one of us, so that every, in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And then we pick up at verse number 11. This morning we're going to read uh, verse 11 to 14. I'm going to focus though, just on 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And to all these words, God's people say, Amen. Well, Advent is the hope of the world. The coming of the Lord is the hope of the world whether we realize that or not. Now, the gospel reading this morning from Luke's uh, gospel, chapter 21, spoke of uh, the perplexity and uh, the, the, the wars, the rumors of wars, uh, the angst, the struggles of this life, the struggles of this world. People wondering why things are happening the way that they're happening. Uh, people concerned about uh, certain trends in society and in politics, and not just in our country, but across the world. And people wondering and contemplating and being perplexed and being distressed and being sad or dismayed about what is the world coming to? But Jesus said to his disciples, and he says to us, when you see all these things happening, he said to stand up and to lift up your eyes and to see and to await the coming of the Lord. What Jesus spoke about as the hope of the believer, the hope of the world, of looking forward to the coming of the Lord, it's what Paul here explains for us in a little bit more detail. So we live in a world that is very ungodly. We live in an age, as Paul describes it here, the present age, uh, that is one that rejects for the most part that the Lord is the Savior, that, that the Jewish Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews, and he's the hope of the world. We live in that world, and it's been that world since the beginning. But Paul here encourages us to 
look back in faith upon the grace of God given to us and to go forward in godliness looking for the coming of the Lord once again. So that's what I want us to focus on and hear this morning. He is writing to us as Christians, as believers, that we are to look back in faith upon the first advent, embrace again the grace that God has given to us in Jesus Christ, to live godly lives in the here and the now, and while we're doing that, to look forward to the coming of the Lord in glory, the glorious appearing, or the, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of, the great, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So living the light of Advent, living the light of the Lord's coming, recognizing the darkness of our age and recognizing the struggles of our time, we want to look backwards, we want to look forwards. That's really what Advent's all about, to look backwards to look forwards. Notice, first of all, this morning on the outline there, you'll see there are just two points, two, two big points in bold. We see, first of all, the epiphany of grace in verse number 11. Uh, and then secondly, verses 12 and 13, the effects of grace. The epiphany of grace, the effects of grace. He says here to us in verse number 11, for, that little word for, gar is the Greek term, because, we are to adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior with godliness. Why? That's what the little word for is now going to explain. Why? This chapter, this list of duties and Christian responsibilities, uh, older men towards younger men, older women towards younger uh, women, servants and masters and so forth, are to live in godly ways. Why? That's verse 11. For. This explains the reason for this list of duties and Christian responsibilities. For the grace of God, he says, has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. So think as Paul's writing that, and he's expressing that as a Jewish rabbi turned believer in Messiah Jesus, look at what he says there and think about the grace of God. How was the grace of God manifested and revealed to the Jews, to the, the people of God in ancient times? How did God show his grace to Adam and Eve in the garden? We saw that, remember, in Genesis, that the, after they'd fallen into sin... God then clothed them with animal sacrifices, that they were naked and ashamed in their sin. They recognized what they had done. And God himself, in grace, sacrificed animals and clothed them to cover their shame, to cover their sin. God showed grace in sacrifice, in clothing our first parents. How did he show his grace in an age just like ours, of darkness and depravity, how did he show that grace to Noah? How did God show grace to Noah in an age of great darkness and depravity? The ark. The ark. God was going to send judgment upon the whole world. He was going to flood the world in a judgment that he had never done before. But yet he then tells Noah that he's going to build this boat. The grace of God was revealed in that tangible way of skin, animal skins in the garden, an ark of wood, covered with pitch, covered with tar to keep it waterproof, the ark? How did God show his grace to our forefather, Father Abraham? How did he show his grace to Abraham? He provided a ram, so he told, told him to sacrifice his own son, and just as he's about to do it, the angel of the Lord tells him to stop, 
And the Lord is going to provide himself the sacrifice and the ram. And there the ram was. So he showed it in that way. How else? He promised Abraham that his, his, his family line, his seed, was going to be as many as the stars that the heavens and as many grains of sand as you can see on the seashore. How did then he show that to Father Abraham? Remember, he fell asleep. And he sacrificed, Abraham sacrificed animals. He fell asleep, and the Lord passed through in that covenant ritual. God showed himself in a visible form of fire and, and smoke passing between the animals. How about to the Israelites in Egypt, and as they were brought out of Egypt? How did God show his grace to the Israelites in the story of the Exodus? The, the Passover lamb, the blood on the door was one of them. He was going to send the angel of death to kill every firstborn in the land, from the Pharaoh's house all the way down to even animals. But yet if you sacrifice this lamb and you put the, door, uh, the blood on the doorpost, that angel would pass by. So we have the Passover lamb. How else? They came to the Red Sea. Behind them was the, were the armies and chariots of Pharaoh. In front of them was a sea that was impassable. How did God show his grace? He parted the sea in two. How did he show his grace to this unworthy people as they grumbled and complained in the wilderness that there was no bread, there was no meat, there was no water, not enough graves, so on and so forth? How did he show his grace? Manna from heaven, the bread from heaven. Water that came rushing out of a rock as they were parched with thirst. How else? How else? The angel of the Lord followed them. The cloud of fire and smoke and glory. So God showed his grace and has shown his grace throughout the ages, time after time, again and again and again. And there were promises in the prophets looking forward to a day to come in which those who sat in darkness would see a great light. Those who sat in the darkness of sin would see a great light of salvation to come. That's one of the great Prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter number 9. Those who sat in darkness shall see a great light. And so Paul now says, for the grace of God has appeared. Turn over in your Bible just one letter of the apostle. 2 Timothy chapter number 1, verses 9 through 10. What does he mean here when he says the grace of God? Well, we might think, well, the, 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 the unmerited favor of God. That's what we usually say about, about grace. The unmerited favor of God has appeared. Well, how does it appear? That's the question. When did it appear? Where did it appear? In whom did it appear? Notice in 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse number uh, 9, he's speaking of himself as a servant or a, as, a, as a slave, as a prisoner for the gospel. He's sharing in suffering and he says, speaking of the power of God, he says, who, meaning God, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Why? Not because of our works, but because, notice this, of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. But then notice this, verse 10. So the grace of God has saved us from our sins. And that very grace that we now know, God had already planned it in His Son, Jesus Christ, from before the foundation of the world. Well, what does that have to do with me? How can I access this eternal, mysterious, hidden grace? Notice verse 10. In which now has 
uh, and which now has been manifested through the appearing. It's the same word that's used in, in Titus chapter 2. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So why should, as Paul says, these men and women and everybody else live godly lives? For the grace of God has appeared. Well, what or who or where is the grace of God found? What's the grace of God in Titus 2, verse number 11? For the grace of God has appeared. It's Christ. Notice that. It's Christ. Paul speaks of Jesus as grace. And he personifies grace. He gives grace, which is an inanimate thing, personality. Grace has appeared. How? In Christ. In the coming of our Lord, the coming of the Son, the Savior, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his first coming, his first advent, he has appeared and brought grace with him because he himself is grace. So notice that grace in Titus 2.11 is Christ. Is Christ. The grace of God has appeared, he says. It's appeared, or he has appeared. He's made his epiphany, is literally what he says. He's, made, he, he's arrived, this Savior has, with his grace. Does that mean that there was no grace in the Old Testament? Absolutely not. We just saw there, there's tons of grace. God in his grace, time and time again, saved his people, preserved his people, protected his people by his amazing grace. But what Paul is saying is that now, once and for all, in a very climactic and dramatic appearance, in a way that he's never done so before or been seen, God has now appeared on the scene in human history in his Son, Jesus Christ. God in flesh, as we sang this morning and as we confess in the Athanasian Creed. That Son of God has become human, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's appeared. He's appeared. Now, this language of epiphany, of appearing, uh, it's a term that's used in ancient Greek, but also in, in the New Testament as well. It's adapted to the New Testament. And it's used at times of a sunrise, of a sunrise. I, I was commenting to Caden this morning on the way to church that uh, we, were on, we were coming south in the five, and the sun was like already on, it looked like it was already on, uh, the west side of the five freeway. And I was kind of disoriented, like, is this Joshua's long day? Like, what's going on here? Why, why is the sun already so far over? It's going to set here in a couple of hours. This language of epiphany is the language of a sunrise. You can look out to the east and see the glow just as the sun is rising, quote-unquote rising. We see its glow first out on the horizon, and then you begin to see the various rays of the sun begin to burst forth over the horizon, and finally it appears. That's what this word is trying to describe for us. So children, remember, you see the sunrise every, every morning. We wake up tomorrow really early and look at the sunrise and think of Jesus. He's appeared like the sun rises. There's a glimmer of the sunrise, and that's the Old Testament. There are the rays of the sun, and we get to the Old Testament, especially the very end, the prophets, where it becomes clearer and clearer that there, there's more and more light coming of a Savior. And then when you see that sun just bursting over the horizon, that's the language that Paul uses here for the coming of the Son of God, Jesus. 
He's made his epiphany. He has appeared. And what has he done? He's brought salvation. He's bringing salvation for all people. Again, the context here of in Titus, this little letter of Titus is in chapter 2, there are, he's instructing men and women and young people uh, and servants in all kinds of peoples throughout Roman society. Uh, earlier in chapter number 1, you can look there and you, you'll see there where, uh, where, where Paul talks about those who are of the circumcision party, meaning the Jews. And then he goes on to quote this, uh, uh, this uh, proverbial saying, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So he's speaking here of Jews and Gentiles. So men, women, children, servants, all levels of Roman society, synagogues of Jews and pagans or Gentiles, Romans, Greeks, unbelievers, all kinds of peoples. As Paul says in his letters, there's no Jew or Greek, there is no slave or free, there's no male or female in Christ. These walls have been abolished. These distinctions are no longer there in Christ because He's come and He's brought salvation for all people. He's not come merely to be the Messiah of the Jews. He's not merely to become, uh, come to be a Savior of the Gentiles. He's come to save all people. There is no male or female. There is no slave or free. There is no Jew or Greek. All these distinctions are toppled in Christ. In other words, the grace of God, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus, has appeared He's made his epiphany like the sunrise. And he brings salvation for all people, meaning no one is left out. No one is so far out of reach. No one is is, uh, outside the reach of the rising of this sun. The sun of righteousness. Look at Isaiah chapter 60 before we move on. Isaiah chapter 60 Uh, It's a beautiful prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord Himself. Isaiah 60, I'll just make a couple highlights here, but notice especially verses 1 through 3. This is probably the more familiar language if you know this passage. Arise, shine, for your light has come. That's epiphany language, isn't it? And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Where Where do we think Paul, Rabbi Paul, Rabbi Saul got his language of Titus 2, verse 11. He got it from the Old Testament. He's a Jewish rabbi. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth. Notice that, earth. And thick darkness the peoples, the Gentiles. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Notice this, nations shall come to your light, kings to the brightness of of your rising. The prophet Isaiah is writing 700 years before the coming of the Messiah, and he's writing this to Jews. Kings, nations, Gentiles, peoples will come to you. Your sons, notice verse 4, and your daughters, the Jewish people, will be gathered back into the land. But then he goes on to describe all these peoples of the nations, verse 6, Midian and, and, and Ephah and, and Sheba, they will bring praises of the Lord with them. Kedar, Nebaiot, shall minister, verse 7. And notice, they, these Gentiles, these outsiders, these Greeks, as Paul would call them, 
Verse 7, they shall come up with acceptance on my altar. Remember from the Old Testament when we went through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers a few weeks past? There was the tabernacle in the wilderness and the average Israelite would bring his or her lamb or, or turtle dove or even a bull if they were very rich. They would bring them to the, 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 the door, as it were, it's a big curtain, the door of the tabernacle and the priest would then take the animal and, and sacrifice it. And then they would walk up that high, that high altar, the, the altar of burnt offering. Who could go up that, off, up that altar? Who can offer a sacrifice on top of that? Only the priests. Only a priest could come up on that altar and offer a sacrifice, we saw, of a ritually pure Jew. No Gentiles. And no impure Jews. You've got to be pure. You've got to be holy. You've got to be righteous, right? That's what the law was always saying, was always impressing upon the perfection that God requires. But the prophet sees a day to come in which kings and nations and peoples and tribes and languages and outsiders and strangers and unclean and Gentiles shall come up with acceptance on my altar. Notice, not that they will bring an offering upon my altar, but they will be accepted upon my altar. It's what Paul says in Romans 12 when he says that we are to lay down our lives as living sacrifices. Verse number 9, the coastlands uh, shall hope for me. Verse 10, foreigners and, and so forth. And, and, and the language goes on. But what Paul is saying then in Titus that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. He is saying that that sun has risen. The Lord has come. And there is no people, no tribe, no language, no sinner who is outside the reach of the grace of God. Just like the sun rises up and it, and it hits every single place in the face of the planet. In the same way, the grace of Jesus Christ comes and it brings salvation to the ends of the earth. So the epiphany of grace, in, in some, what Paul is saying to us here is that uh, in the first advent of the Son of God in flesh, Jesus, His incarnation, His birth, Christmas, Christ himself has climactically and dramatically epiphanied grace, brought grace to all peoples, to all peoples. It does not matter who you are today. It does not matter where you come from. It does not matter what sin you have or are or will commit. The grace of God brings salvation and God commands you to turn to him and to believe in his son. The grace of God has come once and for all. Today's the day of salvation. Believe in Him. Embrace the good news of Jesus Christ that transforms, we'll see, lives from the inside out. And this gospel that has come to us, that the Son of God has entered our world, Jesus, He brings salvation. And so again, repent and believe. Embrace Him. Believe in Him today. Give your life to Him today. And for us as believers, we have to remember this. And the, sacra- the word of the sacraments are the way in which God 
continues to appear, as it were, to epiphany as grace to us. How do you and I access God? We come to Him through His Word and through the sacraments and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as we come to the table this morning, come, receive Christ, receive His grace, and receive His mercy. So we have here the epiphany of grace, first of all, and then secondly, the effects of this grace. So we have the first advent of the Son, and then how it affects us, and we'll see this leads us to that, to, that, to that end, that second coming. And so this grace, again, is Jesus himself, and it's so powerful. He is so powerful that he affects us, or he affects us, excuse me, and has effects in our lives. He changes our relationship to God, first and foremost, and his grace, he himself, transforms how we relate to one another. That's why you can write in chapter 2 about how older men are to treat younger men and so on and so forth. The grace of God changes lives. It transforms how we relate to God, how we address God, how we approach God, how we live before God, but also with each other. How? Notice the effects of grace are, first of all, exercising, and secondly, expecting. When the gospel of Jesus Christ enters into our lives... It changes us, and it trains us. Notice this language of exercising, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions or worldly lusts. We call this in theological speak, we call this mortification, that we are to put to death our sins. We are to die to our sins. Paul describes it in Romans 6 in terms of remembering your baptism. When you were baptized, you died with Christ. You were drowned with him. You were flooded with him. And your sins died and you rose again. Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, I want you to see this, the, the relationship between these two things, the grace of God and renouncing. Because Paul speaks here in very intense words exercising, training, renouncing, dying, living in godly lives, living upright lives, living self-controlled lives. He speaks in very strong, stark terms. It's very intense, this renouncing of sin and dying to sin and rising again. I listened to an interview this week. There's a podcast that that I listened to uh, which interviews new believers. And this one new believer uh, overseas was describing how uh, he became a believer and uh, started to go to church and started to figure out, you know, where, well, where, where, where do I go? I'm a, I'm a Christian now. Uh, I was an atheist before. What do I do? Well, I've got to go to church. And so began to go to various churches and described who he was and what he'd done and the things he still struggled with and so forth. His life, you know, has been radically changed. But as we all know, there's a a lot of baggage that comes along with our, with our lives. And uh, he said, you know, every single church that I went to uh, tried to make me feel like, you know, what I, what I did was really not that bad. You know, the sins that I'm struggling with, it, it, you know, you don't really have to change too much, you know. They were trying to, like, not turn this guy away and make it seem like there's all these hurdles you got to jump over in order to become a believer. But this new convert said, you know, they were, really, they were trying to seem like that Christianity was not weird, that it was not strange, that it wasn't really different from 
the life that I lived before. But he realized, you know, that's not true. We will look weird to the world. We are to renounce ungodliness and worldly lusts, worldly passions. Yes, Jesus offers his grace to all, but that grace not only saves us from, you know, in that sort of evangelical idea, you know, we're just saved from hellfire and we just live our merry old lives until the day that we go to heaven. Grace changes us. It, it actually dramatically does something to us. From the very inside of our souls outward, we are to renounce and to live godly lives. It's not just that we are to, to not do certain things and only do other th- certain things outwardly and sort of in just behavioristic kind of ways. No, we are to, from the inside out, our hearts ought to be changed and need to be changed. Notice it's not just renouncing ungodliness, not just actions that are wrong, but it's the passions, the lusts within us. That's where the ungodliness comes out. It's from our hearts. It's from the inside out. God's grace in Jesus Christ has, in a sense, you turned us on the road of life. You've packed your bags. You've got everything to go. You're going to go on a trip. You're going to go on a vacation. You've got all the suitcases. You've got all the kids in the car. You've got the toys. You've got the iPads and you know, whatever else it is, the snacks. You've got all the things that you need to survive that trip. But then you got to make a U-turn. You forgot something back at home. Do you dump all the stuff out of your car on the road in an instant? No. In the same way, when we have been changed from the inside out, we've been saved from our sins, we have literally made a 180-degree U-turn on the road of life, but yet there's a lot of baggage still that goes along with us on that U-turn. Little by little, we are to renounce ungodliness, Little by little, we are to recognize that, wow, these things come from worldly passions and lust from the inside. Little by little, we are changed from the inside out. That's what Paul describes as a, as a metamorphosis in 2 Corinthians, a transformation from the inside out. So we are to renounce ungodliness. This is what grace does to us. It causes us to begin to exercise ourselves in godliness, in contrast to our former ungodliness, and then to live in godliness, to live in righteousness, to live self-controlled lives in this present age. There's that language of this age being this age of, of sin and opposition and so forth. So we are to be mortified, but we, are, we also describe what's called uh, uh, being vivified, meaning that we are to come to life, into a new life, in Jesus Christ. Mortification and vivification, or dying and rising. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. To die to your sins and to live to Christ. Now for us believers, for us believers this is important. Probably the, the first like, point of contact that we're going to have with with, with our unbelieving friends and, and neighbors and, and classmates and so forth. It's how we treat them. It's how we live our lives. I mean, I seriously doubt we're going to get right into philosophical and theological uh, Christianese right off the bat with someone who's an unbeliever. It's probably, you might do that, but it's only because they see how you live and 
They, 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 they experience how you act towards them and so forth. It's how we live our lives. Our Christianity is not a do as I say, not as I do kind of a Christianity. And so how we train ourselves to renounce sin and to live in a godly way is going to have effects also in how we witness and testify and evangelize and seek to bring others with us to, to know Christ. And so, believer, you are to continually be exercising in renouncing ungodliness and living in godliness. And as we are doing that, again, the first advent, the grace of God has come in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we embrace his grace and his salvation. He's changing us, and we are living our lives uh, out of that first coming, but it's going towards something. The second effect is that we are to be expecting something. While we are exercising, we are to be expecting something. Daxon and I were working out this week at the gym, and uh, there's a certain person that works out at the gym, and uh, there's certain people, of course. And if you, ever, you go to a gym and you see pe- certain kinds of people, this, this, this person, uh, we see him there all the time. And uh, we were right in a certain spot in front of a mirror and he literally walked right in front of me because he had to see he had to see himself in the mirror and he was like looking at himself he's like you know i'm still a work in progress and he like walked off no one's laughing at that joke but <laughs> this guy was like work he's been like working out all the time this guy and uh he was like right in the mirror right in front of us you know i'm still a work in progress he's, like talking to himself all the time he's like 70 percent two reps 85 percent three reps you know he's like always like so daxon calls daxon calls him the science guy the science guy. This guy's a science-based workout guy. You know, Dad, this guy, you know, got all, all the percentages down. It's all got it all down. I'm a work in progress, he said. That's, that's, the, that's the exercising. That's the life. But it's going towards something, right? A work in progress means that there's a goal. Expecting something. And that, that something is waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting, notice that, in hope. We saw that last Sunday in, in Romans chapter 8 that we are, well, we are living our lives in hope. The whole creation is now living in hope. Hope that is seen is not hope, Paul said. But we wait for it with hope and expectation because what we see now is not what we, were going, what we are going to see forever when we see God face to face and live with Him forever. And so we are waiting for this blessed hope Living as pilgrims, we sang that in Psalm 63 this morning, that we are uh, wanderers and strangers and pilgrims in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In the Old Testament, there was a festival that was held once a year called the Feast of Tabernacles, and that festival uh, required you to, 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 to live outside of your home and to literally just sort of camp in your backyard, we might say, uh, in our terms today. And you built this little hut, and you had a little roof with some palm branches on top of it, and had, some hole, had a hole in the roof so that at night you would look, sleep and look up and see the stars and remember the promises God made to Father Abraham. That God made promises way back when, but also that God was going to keep those promises in the future. It's the same for us as pilgrims, those who are waiting in between the first and the second advent of our Lord as pilgrims. In our Christian life, it begins at our baptism, and 
Like in the Red Sea, we go through a Red Sea and our sins are left behind, but now we're wandering in the wilderness and we're, we're eating uh, the bread and, the, and drinking the wine of communion, the, the manna and the water from the rock for us. And we're doing that as we're wandering and we're waiting for that day in which we're going to come to the banks of the River Jordan and we're going to cross over into that land that flows with milk and honey. That's the Christian life. We've come to Christ. We are now living in the wilderness with Christ. He's guiding us like that pillar of cloud and fire. And we are on our way towards something which is eternity. The new heaven, the new earth, ultimately. And so we're waiting, he says, for our blessed hope. Well, what is the blessed hope? The appearing, and there's that, uh, the root of the same uh, word we had in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. It's epiphany. We're waiting for the epiphany of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's that Old Testament language again, isn't there? The language of glory. Isaiah 60 again. Arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now, didn't Moses once want to see that glory? The glory the prophet spoke of is going to be seen. Moses wanted to see that glory, didn't he? Lord, show, Lord, you cannot send us out into this wilderness unless you go with us. And the Lord says, fine, I'll go with you. And then Moses says, I've got to see your glory. Lord, show me your glory. What did God do? He took him and put him in this little crack in a rock somewhere. And he said, you know, you cannot see me face to face and live. No man can see me and live. I'm going to hide you in a cleft. I'm going to put my hand over your eyes in a sense. I'm going to protect you, but I'm going to pass by and you're going to see my glory. And when the Lord passed by, the Lord proclaimed and the Lord preached a sermon calling himself the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious and full of compassion and long-suffering to a thousand generations. But Moses only saw the backside. The, the, the Hebrew text is really strange. The backside of God. The back parts of God. When did that glory that Moses wanted to see, that the prophet said, the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, when did that glory touch this earth? In the incarnation. John tells us in John 1, we have seen his glory. He says, no one has ever seen God and lived, but the Son has seen the Father. And we have seen his, the Son's glory. How? The Word became flesh and made His dwelling place, His tabernacle, amongst us. He's come, but He's coming again. The glory of the Lord is coming again. And we're to be waiting for that. Expecting that. Hoping for that. And notice again, verse 10, just quickly. Where Paul tells us that we are to adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. Notice that, our God and Savior. But then in this verse 13, he says that we are to wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Who's the great God and Savior? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. There's a technical Greek construction that is used here that means uh, in this particular way that Paul writes in Greek grammar uh, when he says our great God, God and Savior. You see that? God and Savior. There, there are these two, uh, these two nouns, God and Savior, are connected by, uh, by the little Greek connective 
uh, key, and, and it has a definite article, the, in Greek at least, the God, the God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When two nouns are connected by the word and, and the definite article the comes before the first noun, the person being described, it's equated with those two things. Jesus Christ is the person being described here. Who is he? He's God. He's Savior. Where does the Bible ever say that, God, that Jesus is God? Right here. Right here. We're waiting for the appearing. I mean, who waits for the appearance of a prophet? Right? This, our great God. Oh, and our Savior, this, this sort of prophet, this great guy figure. No, it's, he's our God and Savior. The God and Savior of, of Isaiah 60 who's coming and his glory is going to be seen is Jesus. We're waiting for him. We're waiting for his glory to be revealed. We're waiting for that second advent to come. And so as we wait in hope today and every day of our lives, as we wait in hope for that second epiphany, that second advent of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Paul is saying to you and to me, let us now, in between, renounce sin and live like our Savior lived. As you wait for His coming, renounce sin and live righteously. Why? Because by the first epiphany and first advent, the Son has brought salvation to you and He's transformed you by His grace from the inside out. So because He saved you, live a godly life. And while you're living a godly life, look up and wait for the coming again when He will strip off of us all of our sins. And we saw last Sunday in Romans chapter 8 that our great hope is that we will have our bodies redeemed and transformed. Not just from, from the inside, our souls out, but the entirety of our being transformed and brought to God to live with Him forever. And so as we live in this present age of darkness and depravity, and we are maybe feeling somewhat disillusioned and depressed by the age in which we live, look to the coming of the Lord. Live a godly life. Look back in faith to the wonderful grace that is already brought to you. Let's pray. Our great and our gracious God, we again thank you and praise you for your mercy, your love, your grace to sinners like us. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, affect us today uh, by your grace to live godly lives. Lord, may we live in a way that attracts the unbeliever to want to ask us the reason for the hope that we have. If, Lord, anyone is here who does not know Jesus today, would you work in their heart, stir their conscience, cause them to give themselves to you, to renounce with us, to renounce sin, and to live godly lives, waiting for and hoping for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, our Savior and our God, Jesus Christ. And we ask all this in His name and all of God's people say, Amen.